Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we're going to chat about some of the extraordinary and enigmatic properties of water and discover how another wondrous substance, graphene, is being used to create environmentally sustainable materials. But first, let's look at how scientists have taken an important step towards solving a problem that has been holding back the creation of large-scale quantum computers. There are many challenges facing the scientists and engineers who are trying to develop practical quantum computers. One is related to the huge difference in temperature between quantum bits, or qubits, and the conventional electronics that are used to control a quantum computer. I'm joined down the line from Brooklyn, New York, by Carmela Padovich Callahan to talk about some work done in the Netherlands that could help solve this problem. Hi, Carmela. Hello. So, C- Carmela, the research that you wrote about is trying to alleviate uh, the problem that's caused by this huge temperature difference. W- why is it a problem, and why is it holding back the development of quantum computers? Well, I think we sort of have to start at the basics. When you say quantum bit or qubit, the quantum part only really works if the device is incredibly cold. Quantum mechanics is really only effective at very low temperatures. And if you make your qubits too warm, they stop being qubits and the whole thing simply loses its special properties that engineers and physicists are trying to harness for computational power. So if you consider building a quantum computer, you need a processor which will have qubits in it, which have to be cold, but that processor has to interface with some sort of other electronics that will tell the processor what to do. So what is commonly done now is we use room temperature electronics, the same kind that you would use for any other computing application, and those are simply too warm, which means that you can't put them close to your qubits. So unlike in a conventional computer where everything is sort of hidden inside the box of your computer and everything lives on the same chip, here we run into this problem where if the controllers and the electronics are really warm, they have to be further away. So actually what researchers do now, very often they'll make a qubit and then run a wire from every qubit to some room temperature device, which takes up a lot of space and a lot of power. And, and so you've written, you've written an article for Physics World about this research. It was done by scientists at TU Delft. And, and what have they done to help solve this problem? So what they have done is they've used this um, technology called CMOS, Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductor Technology, which is commonly used in other uh, less, less exotic applications. Um, But because it has sort of a long history of being used, um, say, for phones, it has already been sort of optimized and miniaturized, and it can work at lower temperatures. So we don't need our phones to be cold, but it happens that CMOS technology is great at 2 to 4 Kelvin. In the study that I reported on, they actually kept their controller at 3 Kelvin. So instead of running a bunch of wires from their qubits to some room temperature setup, they actually had a cryogenic chip. Uh, which operated at this rather low temperature and could be closer to the qubits and could control them with um, just simply more practicality. You, you say closer to the qubit, but the, the, the qubits were actually at a, at a much lower temperature, weren't they? 
Yes, that is exactly right. So this is this is sort of the big challenge of this research is that the qubits they used, which are silicon-based qubits, sort of these spins confined in a in a nanoscale system called the quantum dot, those were still at about millikelvin levels. So maybe a hundred or a thousand times cooler than the actual controller. However, that's still a much, much smaller difference than what you would get with room temperature electronics. And it gets rid of this uh, need for thousands and thousands of wires. So in this study, they have really two spin qubits, which, you know, maybe if you have to run two wires, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But to really use a quantum processor on some complicated problem, and, and remember, we're trying to do quantum computing to tackle problems that classical computers can do. So for sure, you need more than two qubits to tackle some big, so far insurmountable problem you would need millions of qubits and then millions of wires. And what this study did, their chip, which is called HorseRidge, it was co-developed with Intel, the HorseRidge chip is small and it can um, maybe not be same temperature as, as the qubit, uh, but the fact that it doesn't have to be far away connected by millions of wires because it's so much colder than room temperature is, is quite advantageous. And, and so does this mean that large-scale integration of, of qubits is now possible, or, or is there much more work to be done? Well, this is definitely a, a move in the right direction, and, and this group is actually, uh, you know, I, I think you could argue that this is maybe the most complex integration done so far, because HorseRidge can be programmed to do all sorts of things, and they've demonstrated um, multiple, multiple functionalities. Uh, however, similar technology has been used with superconducting qubits as well. So there is interest for this, and it could it could go places. At the same time, to, to answer your question more directly, uh, two qubits is, is not quite enough for an industrial application, and the mismatch between millikelvin and a couple kelvin is still quite large. So when I spoke to the authors of this study, their, their sort of uh, wish list would be to make the cryocontroller slightly cooler, but also to make the qubits warmer. I see. Okay. So, so definitely a step in the right direction. So, so Carmela, as well as writing about science, you, you also teach high school and college level mathematics. Um, are you teaching your students about quantum computing? Is it something that you think should be taught at high school level? Or is it, is it perhaps too complicated? This is a great question. So I, I teach ninth grade physics and I teach 12th grade uh, math and actually teaching a little bit of physics this year, this semester too. Uh, so for your, for your listeners in the UK, that would be the, the first and last year of high school. And I find that my students are quite interested in talking about quantum computers and quantum mechanics in general. Uh, in my first year of high school physics class, we talk about conductors and insulators as part of lessons in electromagnetism. And usually I'll mention semiconductors and superconductors, and it really piques the interest of students. And with my older students, some, some of them have explicitly asked me about quantum computing because I know my background is in, in quantum, quantum stuff, sort of, so to speak, um, because they see it in the news. So I think it's, it's absolutely crucial for, for teachers to, to address sort of contemporary research topics, partly because we, we, want, we want our students to be equipped to, to read articles and, and um, you know, any kind of other reporting they may see on, on quantum technology and, and quantum computing for sure is just getting bigger and bigger. So, so our, our more you know, tech savvy students know about it. Um, but also I think for younger students, it's really important to convey the idea that physics isn't over. 
Uh, you know, when they read textbooks, they may get this idea that, you know, you have a physics problem, you open the textbook, you find an equation, you crunch through some numbers, and there we go, we know everything. Um, so I, I, I very much think it, it's good to be to be in conversation with modern research and tell them, you know, that here's a thing that we're working on. Maybe we'll have it when you're older. Maybe we won't have it. Um, but but for them to be aware of, of how much more research there is still to do, and maybe maybe they'll do it too. You know, maybe it will inspire them. Yeah, that's that that's a great point about uh, about you know sort of teaching them that that physics isn't over. Well, thanks. Thanks for, uh, for, for coming on to the podcast, Carmela. And um, if you'd like to read uh, Carmela's article, um, just look for it in the research update section of the Physics World website. Um, it's called CMOS Controller for Quantum Computer Operates at 3K. So Carmela, I think you're, you're, you're about to teach a lesson in a few minutes. So you, you, you've got to run. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Graphene is a sheet of carbon just one atom thick with a remarkable set of mechanical and electronic properties. Indeed, since graphene was first isolated and studied in 2004, scientists and engineers have been developing new applications for the material that range from ultra-fast transistors to highly efficient water filters. I'm joined down the line from the UK's National Physical Laboratory by Andrew Pollard, whose research focuses on understanding the measurement of graphene, which can help companies innovate in the area of sustainability. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hamish. Good to be here. So, Andrew, what are the properties of graphene that allow it to be used in environmentally sustainable materials? Well, I think one of the really amazing things about this uh, two-dimensional material, so like you said, one atom thick graphene is essentially, your way to think about it is a, a nanoscale kind of chicken wire mesh of carbon atoms, is uh, it's, its range of impressive properties. So say electrical conductivity, um, thermal conductivity, um, mechanical properties, and, and even as, as a barrier layer. So there's, there's quite a broad range of, of really impressive uh, properties that this material has. Um, now, uh, at MPL, what, what we're doing is, is looking at understanding the measurements of these properties, because actually um, they're very key to then, um, in, when you look at the final product that uses the graphene material, um, the actual physical material properties of this graphene, as there is no one graphene, um, you know, the physical properties say the particle size or thickness or the, you know, the chemical properties, they will have a effect on the final product. And so this is why you, the key understanding of, of measurement of the material and, and essentially instills confidence in the supply chain and answers this question, what is my material? So it's actually a combination of these properties in a lot of cases that make it very exciting for different application areas for graphene to be used um, you know, in many areas, but you're know, looking at sustainability, um, particularly looking at, for example, energy storage um, you know, through to um, you know, uh, supercapacitors through to lithium ion batteries or, or new types of um, battery architecture um, through to composites, uh, looking at uh, essentially light weighting for many, you know, whether that's automotive through to aerospace applications and um, through to actually re recycling of materials. And again, a lot of this you know, can be uh, put down to the mechanical properties 
um, and, uh, but also you know, the electrical properties. And sometimes that's a side, you know, extra uh, improvement that you get in the actual product itself. And, and so is graphene actually being used at the moment in, in manufacturing products or, or, or is this still really at a, a, a sort of an R&D uh, phase? I think you know, it's 2004, obviously it's actually a short amount of time for a new material to get into a market, but actually there's there's been real loops and bounds. I mean, uh, it, it is in products. You can buy real-world products at UUI. The general public can buy these products uh, with graphene in them. Um, you know, the, sort, the sort of thing you would see is, is sporting gear, but actually now, for example, they're, they're in cars. Uh, you're a good example of, of using um graphene um, in part of the noise cancellation of foam in, in cars. Um, actually, you get double-digit improvements in, in the noise cancellation, but also make it more resistant to heat and stronger. So actually, it's therefore more durable and and you don't need uh, you know, as much of it. So it's essentially uh, getting lighter. Um, you know, that, that's obviously a very mainstream application of cars, but as is uh, smartphones. So again, very different to, to, say, putting this into a noise cancellation foam um, in the car. So looking at the thermal management of the smartphone. So again, you can buy phones now on the market that have uh, graphene as essentially a layer to uh, dissipate heat. Um, again, listeners will know your know, phones do get hot, and actually, you know, as we see more uh, greater and greater processing power in, in things such as phones and other devices, actually, the, the amount of heat that's um, emitted is actually very large, and you have to be able to do you know, essentially remove that heat or dissipate it. Um, and then a very good example of, of what we're talking about here in terms of sustainability is actually uh, now in, in concrete. Now, not many people actually know that the, the concrete uh, industry is, is actually a very big producer of, of CO2. I think it's about 8% of all carbon emissions are, are linked to uh, the, the concrete industry, and that's about four times that of aviation. So um, we're now seeing um, some great work from many different companies, particularly in the UK, um, adding very, very low levels of graphene to uh, concrete. So talking about, say, 100 or 1,000 of a percent um, to improve the performance of, of, of concrete by 20%. So whether that's, you know, for example, things like the, the strength, but also water resistance. So you're making it more durable. It can last longer. But also, if you're making it stronger, you can use less of it. Um, and the fact that, you know, it's about 1,000 pounds per tonne CO2 release for every tonne of concrete, that's, that can have a really big saving. Um, so again, we're actually seeing now um, uh, graphene in concrete being used in in the real world. Actually, um, companies reported recently that they uh, have been using it and actually used thirty percent less material, and also they didn't need the steel reinforcement. So, so yes, it's it is being used now in in different areas. And and what are some new applications that that you're working on? I suppose you're you're not actually working on the applications, but uh, but working on the measurement side of things and 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 what benefits um w- w- would these applications offer yes it's a good point so again as npl we're metrology institute for the uk so again we're focusing on understanding you know how uh, what actually is uh, how do we measure this material and what therefore is it so companies in the supply chain can essentially go yes i understand i want that material or that material um because of the properties because everyone's measuring it essentially in the same way um, and therefore you can compare products and this has been really important for a long time in this industry where there's you know lots of different ways of producing a you know, say a powder containing a graphene or fuel air graphene um, and actually therefore you need to have a way of, of uh, measuring it to understand those properties that quantitatively traceably 
you know, and knowing the accuracy or precision of that measurement. So this is the work that we've really been uh, doing a lot of over the last, um, you know, sort of eight years, really. And actually, very recently, there's um, an international standard that uh, we've published through uh, ISO that uh, is the first standard to allow companies to actually verify how much you know, graphene material there is in the product. So this, um, you know, th th this is really important, a bit of what we're doing for a while. But when you talk about the new applications off of that work is actually really looking at the quality control. So again, when I talked about your example just there about concrete, you know, you're talking about tons of material now. So you need to have that amount of supply. Companies, uh, producers need to be able to supply that amount of material. Um, and therefore, you don't just want the standardized, very accurate uh, methods of understanding the material. You need to have a quality control process. So you know when you're sending these large-scale batches out of the door that they're good enough for your customers to use. So actually, yeah, a lot of work we've been doing, typically through um, uh, UK funding um, programs, such as analysis for innovators, measurement for recovery, has been working with uh, UK companies, particularly SMEs, um, you know, small companies, to help them develop quality control processes for, again, um, applications such as concrete, but also composites. So there's a lot of um, work being done with um, light weighting. So again, if you add a small amount of graphene to say a plastic, you uh, don't need as much of it. Um, again, batteries is, is a big area. Um, you know, again, you need a lot and lot of material. If you look at the amount of, um, say, graphite material uh, being used in standard batteries and looking at um, other working and using graphene as well. There's going to be tons of this material that you need to be able to understand. We, we actually published some work recently looking at uh, you know, fast methods, rapid methods that um, essentially are cheaper um, and and easier to use. That you can essentially um, verify your material is uh, within tolerance with, within a few minutes. And um, yeah, so again, if you look at stuff like uh, how important energy storage is going to be um, for you know, net zero targets and a sustainability um you know, we need to find you know very high energy density batteries um and actually ones really that don't use the common materials that we use if you look at a standard lithium-ion battery yeah there's there's materials in there that aren't sustainable with the rate that we need to use and cobalt's a, a good example of, of, of one of those materials so looking at stuff like um lithium sulfur batteries for example which is much more abundant material also very high energy density graphene has been shown to be a great um, additive to um, these type of batteries to actually um, uh, basically keep them stable, improve the stability so that they are more viable. Um, but also work such as fuel cells and recycling as well. We, um, we're seeing companies now, we know the issues around plastics in terms of sustainability. Plastics are very important materials. You know, they, they do a lot of important things. We couldn't do it without plastics, but there is an issue around recyclability. Um, so, for example, car tyres are a, a good one. And there's, there's a company in the UK now looking at adding a small amount of graphene and um, uh, essentially new um, uh, you know, plastic material to what is essentially old tyres to then reuse it and repurpose it because we, I think we bury or burn about a billion tyres a year in the world. So you know, if you can imagine starting to recycle that material, um, all of this, you know, again, you, you need to understand the, the graphene material that you're putting in and you're at a large industrial scale for these to actually work in the real world uh, industry. So, so since graphene was discovered um, in 2004, um, scientists have developed uh, uh, some similar 2D materials. Um, are, are there any other materials that are similar to graphene that, that show potential for sustainable manufacturing? Yes, I think you know, graphene, as we say, it's a 2D material and the world's first 2D material, but it's opened up a real field of, of uh, 
amazing research into this, this family of materials, these 2D materials now. And actually, if you look at, uh, for example, boron nitride is, is uh, similar in structure to, uh, to graphene, but still have a carbon recover boron and nitrogen atoms um, and has different properties, but also similar properties. So, for example, it has some, uh, still has some great mechanical properties and thermal properties, but actually it's insulating rather than electrically conductive, which graphene has some um, really impressive electrical conductivity uh, properties, or nitride uh, is an insulator. So you actually could look at using it for different applications where actually you don't want electrical conductivity. So I've kind of got this uh, atomic scale toolbox now of, of different 2D materials we can use for different applications. So for example, semiconductor materials, um, uh, the conductive insulators, superconductor materials. Um, and this is really important for a lot of the challenges that we, we're going to see going forward. And just to think of kind of one is, you know, electrification um, when we look at for example uh, looking at aviation and wanting to look at how we uh, want to change that industry and uh, in terms of uh, electrification um, and uh, you will need new materials to do that because you don't have the materials come to be able to um, essentially uh, develop the uh, innovation in that area that you'll need to enable say your uh, planes that are powered you know, with a turbine and, and, and a big battery. So, so yes, it's, it's a really exciting time in this material science area. Oh, that, that sounds really interesting. I, I, I like the idea of a nano material toolbox. Um, it sounds like something that could be of great use to, uh, to, to a wide range of industries. If you'd like to know more about um, graphene research at NPL, check out the notes for this podcast on the Physics World website, and I'll have a few links there for you. Thanks, Andrew, for joining me today. Thanks, Hamish. Water is a truly unique substance that physicists find both fascinating and baffling. Just one example of its extraordinary properties is that unlike other common substances, the density of water drops when it solidifies. And this means that ice floats on a frozen lake, preserving the life within during cold winters. To talk about a new study of the physics of water, I'm joined down the line from the University of Bristol by Catherine Skipper. She's doing a PhD on experimental active matter, and is also a student contributor to Physics World. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. So what is it about water that makes it such an interesting thing to study? As you said, water is an anomalous liquid. It doesn't behave like anything else in the universe. And it deviates more and more from the properties of a simple liquid as you cool it, um, as you supercool it below zero degrees without it freezing. So as water is cooled, further and further below its freezing point while still remaining a liquid its density starts to fluctuate which make which indicates that it's nearing a phase transition there's still no consensus as to what this transition is or whether it whether it even exists so catherine the research that you wrote about was done by greg kimmel and lonnie kringle at the pacific northwest national lab in the u.s and it's a study of supercooled liquid water at temperatures below about minus 43 degrees Celsius. I mean, it's amazing that, that water's liquid <laughs> at that temperature, or can be liquid. And, and this is a region that had previously been inaccessible to scientists. Why are researchers keen 
to look at this temperature regime. Because if water has a phase transition below zero degrees, it's in it's probably in this temperature region. Most scientists agree that one of the reasons water is anomalous is because unlike most liquids, there's more than one way for water to exist as a liquid. Because of the, the shape and structure of a water molecule, uh, even when it's in a disordered phase like a liquid or um, a non-crystalline solid, water can in either a high or a low density structure. And the general consensus is that below zero degrees, water is a combination of these two structures. Uh, and that this is a notoriously thorny area of physics. There's a, there's a lot of theories on this. Any experimental evidence is valuable, but there's a region between about 160 and 230 Kelvin where supercooled water crystallizes incredibly quickly. So the structure of of liquid water is incredibly difficult to measure. And 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 so how did um, did Kimmel and Kringle do this? What what were the challenges in making their measurements, and and how how were they overcome? I I understand that they used lasers um, in their experiment. Is that right? Yeah. So they used a technique they've been developing for I think about eight years, where they they take uh, amorphous that is non-crystalline ice and uh, heat it very rapidly with very fast uh, laser pulses. So these, the laser pulse heats the water very cold between 160 and 230 Kelvin for about 70 Kelvin. It melts. Uh, the molecules move around a bit, but because the laser pulse is so fast, the liquid water goes back to a, the original temperature incredibly quickly. So it solidifies almost instantly. And it solidifies so quickly that the, the structure of the molecules as a liquid is locked in when it solidifies. So you can apply a laser pulse and then look at the, the, salt, the, the solid water at the end and see what the liquid structure was. And if you apply uh, multiple pulses, you can see how the structure of the material evolves from an amorphous solid to an equilibrium supercooled liquid. And, and so when they made these measurements, so what, what, what did they see? Was it, was it what they expected or was it co something completely different or something in between? So a couple of years ago, they used this technique to, to basically to see whether, in, because it hadn't, it hadn't actually been shown experimentally, whether water can form a stable um, liquid in this regime. And they found that it could, and they found that it is a mixture of high and low density water. What they wanted to know is whether the the structure of of the water is related to um, the dynamics to how fast the water molecules are moving. Um, whenever you're in the like the supercool regime of a liquid, knowing about the dynamics is important because if you cool a liquid far enough below its freezing point without it crystallizing, it will eventually form a form a glass, form an amorphous solid, and we still have very little idea about why and how glasses form. So they wanted to know whether they could they could find a link between the structure of water, which we know is unusual, and the dynamics below zero degrees. Um, so they measured the the relaxation time of the water, the number of pulses, laser pulses it took to get from amorphous ice to equilibrium supercooled water. And they did this in two ways for they started with um, both high and low density amorphous ice, and they 
he set into this regime between 160 and 230 Kelvin and looked at how quickly um, it relaxed. And what they found is that starting with high or low density water, you get the same structure of the supercool water, but the high density water relaxes much faster. And they found that they could they could reproduce the experimental results if you treat the dynamics as being related to structure. So, so it sounds like they, they, they've got some sort of clues as to what's going on, but I'm guessing that, that much more work is, is required before we fully understand um, supercooled water and, and water in general. Yeah, I think the new research on supercooled water is always, it's always contentious because it's such a difficult subject to study. The validity of this research depends on in two things. It firstly depends on high, high and low density water and high and low density ice have, have equivalent structures. They've also made the assumption that the relaxation time they've measured, which is the time it takes for the ice to become a supercooled liquid, is equivalent or at least related to the relaxation time of the supercooled liquid itself, which is what most theoretical studies measure. So, Catherine, you're currently doing a PhD studying active matter. What is active matter and, and what, what are the properties of, of active matter that you're looking at? So, active matter is a material made up of particles which self-propel. They have some internal source of energy. So, a lot of biological systems such as tissues, which are made from moving cells, and flocks of animals like birds can be described as active systems. What I'm looking at a synthetic kind of active particle called a, a Janus particle. Uh, Janus particles are tiny silica spheres with a with a metal cap on one side that self-propel when you put them in an electric field. What we're looking at is how these particles behave in three dimensions and how the behavior is affected by the electric field because there's a lot of Similarly to the supercooled water, there's a lot of theoretical research on active particles and getting um, an experimental system that can, that can reproduce simulations is really difficult because the mechanism by which these particles self-propel complicates, complicates the system a lot. And so we want to know what aspects of the system, such as the electric field, um, because these particles are dipolar, how they affect the phase behavior of these particles, and particularly what happens in three dimensions. Well, that, that, that sounds, sounds really interesting. So, so why are, are scientists interested in active matter? C- can it tell us something about, um, about the world around us? Yeah, so I think firstly because a lot of biological systems are active, so you can, with fairly basic physical principles, it's possible to reproduce things like bird flocking an active system. I think also because I think if, it tells us something about non-active systems because if you allow a particle to self-propel, if you give it a source of energy, it, it pushes the system out of equilibrium and the thermodynamics are very, very different. It can answer like very fundamental questions about why different materials form different phases and how phase transitions happen. Right. Okay. So that that I suppose that brings us back to uh, to water. You can read more about this latest research on supercooled water in Catherine's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline: "Lasers peer into a mysterious region 
of supercooled water. Thanks for being on the podcast, Catherine. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Catherine Skipper, Andrew Pollard, and Carmela Padovich Callahan for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do check out our latest video, which looks at how artificial intelligence systems can be biased against some groups of people. The video is called Artificial Intelligence Technologies Can Reinforce Inequalities. And it looks at how physicists are raising awareness of this issue. You can find it on the Physics World website. Physics World.